10 extra points for showing up to church even though it is 70 degrees outside. And uh, I know you looked at the forecast and you went, we have all week long, but uh, it's good to be in worship with you. Um, we are in the middle of this series, continuing this series in First Peter that we've called Exiles. And the reason for that title, right, is that, that Peter, remember, he's writing to a church that has found itself out of sorts with the world. Um, Brian said last Sunday, they, they don't fit in. They, they suddenly stand out. It's, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, I was thinking this week, it's, have you ever been to like a birthday party with your kids? And they've got all their classmates there and um, you're just kind of there as a chaperone. You don't know anybody, just kind of feeling like a misfit. Or maybe, maybe you can't relate to that one. Um, one I think many of us can relate to though is the, the, the office Christmas party, Right? where you, you come as the spouse, you know no one in the office, and as you're meeting these people and they're telling you their names, you're like, oh, that's, that's that person my, my spouse uh, complained about three months ago. <laughs> Keep the faith. Now, being a misfit is, a, is an odd thing. And yet what the series has taught us is that it's, it's God's plan for the church not to fit in. Peter calls us chosen exiles, right? Which then begs the question, if that's the description of God's people, how do we faithfully live into that calling? How do we do that well? And so this morning, we're gonna turn to chapter two, continuing in this series, looking at those, those things. We're gonna look at verses one through 10. And I wanna talk about some do's and don'ts if we're gonna live faithfully into that, uh, that lifestyle of exile. Let's hear God's word now. Peter says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stone, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Years ago, I went on a work trip to Memphis, Tennessee, and while we were there, I made it my personal mission to find the best barbecue I could in town. Because that's the logical thing to do when you're in Memphis, am I right? And after some trial and error, we, we finally found this spot called Corky's Ribs. And the minute I walked in, I knew I had arrived. This kind of place where the hickory just sort of permeated your clothes on the way in. 
the kind of place where they skipped the plates, right? And you knew it was the real deal because all the meat got put on the fresh cut butcher paper instead. And it was right there that I tasted the best banana pudding in my life. <laughs> There's something about a taste that good that ruins everything else in comparison, right? You ever had one of those moments? Ever since Corky's, no barbecue has come close. Look at this in verse three. Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, then long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If you have experienced God's goodness in your life, Peter wants us to know there is a different kind of meal by which God's people now live their days. I remember early on as a young dad, holding this newborn in my arm and doing everything I could to get my wife a good night's sleep. But this little girl, she, she knew that the bottle in my hand was counterfeit goods, right? And somehow, despite the fact that she was only a few weeks old, she, she, there was no way she was going for it. I have never seen persistence like that in my life. See, but what I want you to see is this, this morning's principle is so simple, a two-week-year-old gets it. Peter wants the church to understand, if you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, all other items in the buffet line are rotting garbage. And he says to this early church, what you need in your path is spiritual milk. That spiritual milk, hear this. It is the feast of God's word. Just think about your faith life for a minute. Where along the path would you put a, a big sign in the ground that said right here, this was the moment that I tasted the Lord's goodness? Where would you put that signpost? You know, if I had to pick just one sign, it, it would have to be the moment where I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, right? That's what it ultimately means to taste and see that God is good. See, but keep in mind, let's, let's keep in mind who Peter is talking to here, right? He's writing to a church that's been exiled. They're not just facing opposition, they're, they're facing the first fruits of persecution and, and times are beginning to turn sour. So you can imagine it's, it's probably hard to taste the goodness of the Lord when someone's kicking sand in your mouth. So Peter reminds him, he says, if you want to stand fast, if, if you're going to find endurance for the struggle, like newborn infants, you now long for the spiritual nourishment of the word. You ever notice when it's been a, a stressful season or a difficult week, how, how quickly your carnal cravings take over? And I think in our human nature, especially when times are hard, we'll chase after all kinds of longings and cravings in the flesh. The pandemic proved that more than anything, right? Shut everything down, but golly, keep the liquor stores open. Peter wants this besieged church to know, once you've tasted God's goodness, like newborn infants, what we need, what we long for, what we should crave is the spiritual milk that is his word. 
Look at this in verse 10. Look at how he unpacks this. He says, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you taste and see. And as ones who have savored that, as ones who have experienced that love, there's now no other craving that compares. I mean, why would you go after any other barbecue when you got corkies in hand? And you can see where this is going, right? That this exiled church has a second problem. That, that is, it's not just in what they should be desiring. Peter tells this church there's some junk food you gotta get rid of. It's not just what we feast on that, that keeps our witness strong. It's also in those things that we're called to abstain from. Look at this in verse one. He says, put away all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Here's a word salad. I was reading up on the junk food industry earlier this week and I was blown away. I had no idea. Did you know that certain companies which shall remain nameless to keep us away from lawsuits spend over $30 million a year just to study how to manipulate your cravings? They hire psychologists, right, to help the corporate, the, the corporate staff understand how to better market their food to you in order to hack your appetite. In fact, I found out last week how they came up with the idea of Cheetos. They call Cheetos vanishing caloric density. Think about that, vanishing caloric density. The reason that they melt in your mouth is literally to trick your brain into thinking there's no substance so you can keep eating. I've gotten us off track, but just consider this with me again. Peter says, if you've tasted in the goodness of the Lord, that not only means craving the pure spiritual milk that is his word for your life, it also means putting away the stuff that is a clear detriment to your body and to your soul and therefore to your witness in Jesus' name. And here's how he lays this out, right? He says the first thing that's gotta go in your pantry, the first thing you've gotta get rid of as chosen exiles is malice in your hearts. When I say that word malice, what, what image comes to mind for you? Malice. The Greek here means evil or wickedness. Ill will intentionally to someone else. If, if you ask the lawyer, they would say malice is a, an intentional desire to wound someone else. So we should ask, like, why would Peter start here? What is it about malice that's so deadly to this, this exiled flock? You know, I think when I think of malice, I don't think of like Sunday morning, right? I mean, at least I would hope not. But at the same time, when I, when I think about my deepest wounds or the greatest enemies that I've faced, I would be lying if I didn't say I've had moments in my mind where I've slipped into that void. You with me? Where, where maybe even intentionally in my hurt, I wished ill will, malice on someone else. And here's this church facing an enemy that's only getting stronger, that wishes and desires to do harm to their way of life, and Peter calls on them to be on guard against their malice. You know, if you think about it, this is the most ancient of sins, right? Remember the first brothers in the Bible, Cain sees that God favors his brother Abel over him, and he's warned by God that this anger inside of him will devour him but with malice, he kills his own flesh and blood. 
If you've tasted that the Lord is good, Peter says, that's not for you. The image that Peter gives is the, the idea of ragged clothes. As I was growing up as a child, you didn't come to the dinner table. You didn't come to the feast unless you were washed up and clean. Look again at this in verse four. Here's why we do this. Peter says, the one we follow, remember, is a living stone rejected by men just as you were, but is in the sight of God chosen and precious. In other words, you're not the first ones to experience this phenomenon of exile. And the reason that we put off malice is simply because that's what Jesus did. You know, one of the most mind-boggling scenes in all of Scripture has got to be the moment where, where in the flesh, Christ is being ripped apart and his life being unjustly taken in the most torturous way, and he looks up to heaven and he says what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Peter writes this church with the same kind of enemies before them, and he, he begins with this reminder that to hate is to destroy your witness of that one whom you follow. Verse nine, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. If we're going to witness God's love, the first thing that has to go within us, the, the first thing that needs to be crucified in our own hearts is malice. But let's be honest, right? That's kind of a churchy thing to say. Love your enemies, bless those who want to do harm to you. But deep down, that's a tough hike. I mean, how do you, how do you truly love those who want to wreck your way of life, who, who wish to do you harm? I think it gets much more complicated, even as you think about it personally. Like, how do I forgive my ex who set out to destroy me? How do I forgive my business partner who stole thousands from my family? How do I forgive the, that coworker who was climbing up the corporate ladder and pushed me down? I think the hard part about the Christian life is wounded people wound people and the cycle continues. But Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, why in the world would you return to that world's buffet of wounding and hatred and malice? And just to be super clear, then Peter wants us to know that from that malice flow all the other poisons that destroy the church. He says, you want to know what malice looks like? Here's what it looks like. It manifests itself in these four things. It manifests as deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. If malice is wishing to do someone else harm, you think about it, every one of those streams flow from that main channel. They are contrary to the spiritual milk of God's word. In fact, let's just leave those up on the screen and hear me out. I'm gonna get wordy on you, but let's just slow this down. In our hypocrisy, we deceive because we want ourselves to look better than those around us, do we not? They go hand in hand, right? We pretend to be self-righteous so that others will see us as spiritually superior, and in so doing, that's malice. I've heard it said a thousand times, right? You ask someone who's on the fringes of, of church land, you say, why won't you come to church? And what do you hear? 
The first thing you hear is, well, it's a group full of self-righteous, judgmental people, and I don't belong. One of the things I love about Spring Hill is that we actually put it in our core values. No, no, no. We are a broken people, restored only by Jesus Christ. I'm no more deserving of God's grace than the newbie that just walked in the door. And here's the cousins, right? The cousins of deceit and hypocrisy are envy and slander. And same sign, we envy, right? We slander because we want our own image to appear more highly than those around us. Oh, how the prayer requests in small group can quickly and subtly slip into that trap. Peter says, Guard against envy and slander because when you push someone else down so that you might rise up, that's malice. And the reason that we should toss those things out, right, is that if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you don't need that meal. When you truly understand what it is to to be loved, to be purchased in Jesus Christ, to find the contentment before the throne, that makes all those things unnecessary in your life. Just look back over your week with me. Let's just ask this question together. I'll ask it with you. Where has deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander revealed the malice that's in your heart? I'll say it again. Where has deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander revealed the malice that's deep within you? I'm not pounding the pulpit here, right? I ask that because we should identify the junk food that we've been tricked into so that our witness of Christ stays pure. Because when we fail to get real, when when we deceive and we live in hypocrisy, when, when we slander those around us in our own envy, here's the damage. We cause everyone else around us to hide their imperfections in the shadows too, and like cancer, sin spreads. Some of the most powerful moments I've seen in the church came in an appropriate moment where one brave person let down their pride and got real about their need for God's mercy. And you know what happened immediately after that? You know what followed? When they took their mask off and they got vulnerable in a moment of truth, that was when we begin to see all the other sins lose their power too. I'm not suggesting that we wave our dirty laundry from the rooftops, right? But when we deceive, when we fake it in our hypocrisy to each other into the world, when when we allow our envy to turn into slander, we ruin our witness of Christ. And you know, of that list, I feel like the most difficult one to pin down has got to be envy. The other ones kind of come out, or you, you can find them. You can hide envy so well, right? Look at this from Immanuel Kant. He said it like this. He said, envy is a wretched vice because it hurts everyone. It torments the subject who envies and it hopes to destroy the happiness of the one envied. Someone once called envy the least fun sin. I'll let you take that to lunch and you can just kind of work through them and see if you agree. I've heard it once defined like this. Um, Envy is resenting God's goodness to others while ignoring God's goodness to me. Years ago, the Wall Street Journal featured an article about these two twin brothers named Al and Elliot who ended up ruining their friendship and their brotherhood over a seed that had been planted all the way back in their childhood. Al said one day he came home 
with his report card in hand as a young boy. And his father asked him, he said, how come you always get B's and your brother always gets the A's? He said that day a seed was planted. Elliot became a lawyer and a Supreme Court judge, just as any straight-A student might do. Al built up his own business and life insurance, and eventually, as time would have it, Al's insurance company ended up being far more successful than Elliot financially. So over Christmas one year, in front of all the family, Elliot asked his brother, how is it that I'm a lawyer and you make more than me? Over time, this root of bitterness, this envy began to sprout, and when the, when the boy's mother died, it blew up into an entire family conflict. Alan Elliot had a falling out, and from that day forward, they never spoke again. One day, Al got an email. Elliot said in it that his time was short. He had cancer. He said he had lived his entire life building fences, and now he just wanted to build a bridge. How much do we regret that distance in relationships? Because instead of living out God's word, we lived out the cravings of our flesh. See, and here's why this matters. What, what Peter says to the church is he says, in your exile, in your struggle as God's chosen people, you're being built up as living stones. It's kind of an obscure picture. We, we need to unpack it a little bit. I mean, you ever seen a living stone before? I had a pet rock when I was growing up. Now, rocks are by their very nature dead, right? But the, but the picture here is that each stone is being placed one on another until eventually you see this spiritual house by which the world comes to know who Jesus is. He says, you are the living, breathing body by which the lost now come to faith in his good news. But it's really hard to be that witness if you're caught up in malice. Malice for your enemy, malice for your brother, malice for those who oppose you. You ever find yourself in someone else's house in the midst of a conflict that wasn't yours? That's awkward, isn't it? It's like, where is the door? Now look at this in verse 11. I'm jumping ahead to next week, but just go with me. He says, we are called to abstain from those passions in our flesh that wage war against our soul so that even when the Gentiles speak evil, they'll see our good deeds and glorify God. In your exile, Peter says, put away the deceit, the hypocrisy, the, the envy, the slander. Why? So that the world would taste and see too. And notice this. This is important. Peter doesn't just say, now replace all those vices with virtues. He doesn't say, okay, um, replace the deceit with truth. That'll fix that. And then replace the hypocrisy with consistency. And you've got yourself covered there. And replace the envy with generosity. No, no, no. He says, replace those things with the spiritual milk of God's living word. Make that your diet. That'll be enough. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel like the more I try to cease from the sins in my life, sometimes the harder the struggle, right? But it is when I seek first his kingdom, when I open up his word, all the rest is added unto me. There is power in the word. It is living and active. It never returns void. It is what points us in the world back to Jesus Christ. Peter named him the cornerstone. Remember, that's, that's the first block placed in the foundation, right? It, it orients all the other stones towards it. 
Everything else pointing in that direction. The cornerstone sets the standard for the rest of the blueprint. Everything else aligns with it. Here's where I think this is super relevant for Spring Hill. We've said, ironically, we want to be a church to call home. And we don't mean this building. We want to be about building authentic community in Christ. We want to be living stones because you don't find the best barbecue in town and then keep the good news for yourself, do you? Now, if you've tasted the Lord's goodness, you now want everything about you to point others back to him. See, but here's the hard part, right? We exist at a time in history that puts us at odds with the culture around us. Where every day the, the Gentiles, as Peter says, are all too eager to push a harsh word against his church. So living is that, that witness. How we live out our witness really boils down to two things. We long for the spiritual melt and we toss out all the rest that destroy our witness of who he is. God's word implores us, get rid of it. Remove it from your hearts. Remove it from your families. Eradicate it from the church. Fight against it in your own heart. You know, when I think about that word to us, I, I think about the student that I had in youth group years ago. Um, she had come from a really rough place, a uniquely rough place. She was born with infant alcohol syndrome. She had spent most of her childhood bouncing around from orphanages. And I remember when I first met her, every word out of her mouth was, I'm sorry. She couldn't get a sentence out without apologizing for something. For some reason, she felt like she was lesser than all the other people around her, particularly in church. But I'll never forget on this same verse visit, one of the other girls in the youth group saw that this young lady was struggling and she invited her to sit next to her. No judgment. There's no envy about the new kid. There's no hypocrisy laughing behind her back. There was just one person who had fallen in love with Jesus, wanting another to experience him too. Soon I began to watch this young lady settle in the anxiety fell away. It wasn't long before she was at all the events and even a leader. One night, years later, at the final evening for all of our seniors, each person gets to speak. And I'll never forget, she told the group, she said, until I had met this group, she said, I had felt homeless my entire life. She said, I'm not really sure I knew what love is until I stumbled in this place. She said, I finally found where I belong. You are living stones being built up for the cause of Jesus Christ. We have been sent, Peter said, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Psalm 34, eight. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That is our calling. Because once you have the best tasting thing in your life, Everything else pales in comparison and you want everyone else to know about it. Let's ask God to watch over our witness of Jesus this week. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that we have Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. 
the one whom the church orients its life. And we know and we confess that you are building living stones, a church that is called to be a witness, a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. You called us a chosen people, a, a royal priesthood, a nation of, of chosen exiles called to be different than the world around us. But God, we, we know we cannot do that without clinging to your word. And so, Lord, we just confess our weakness. We confess our tendencies to slip into the carnal things. We confess our, our malice that, that creeps up, our hypocrisy, our, our deceit, our, our envy, our slander. God, we ask this morning that you would help us to return to you. God, that we would know we don't need any of that because we have tasted and seen your goodness to us. Lord, and that's enough. So God, we pray, would you watch over our witness this week? Lord, would everything that we say and do bring glory and honor your name? We put our faith in you. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.